0: All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace to us in Christ, for the certainty of your spirit, uh, the comforter, the one who stands in the room that Christ prepared in our hearts. Uh, We pray that uh, we would be attentive, uh, that we would grow in likeness to Christ, uh, that we would understand uh, the matters before us this morning we would walk in the grace of the word, uh, that we would see our proper calling in all of life. Uh, please forgive us of all our sins and use this hour to prepare us for your holy worship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts 17, verse 36, excuse me, 16 through 34. Acts 17, verse 16 through 34. I have a lot of notes today. Don't know that we'll get through all of them, but that'll be okay. <clears throat> Verse 16, it says, Now while Paul waited for them, that's the rest of the company that he was with, going out on a missionary journey. While Paul waited for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the (coughs) synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives life to all, <coughs> excuse me, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell in all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as also... Some of your own poets have said, for we also, we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Amen. At the request of... A fine and outstanding gentleman, I am going to do some lectures on apologetics in Sunday school. Um, don't know quite how many we'll do, we'll kind of play it by ear as we go and see uh, how long it takes us to get through even this introductory material. Um, I will try to also include uh, other things that are in the notes, uh, because the study of apologetics, it's complicated. And I don't just mean based on its subject matter. Right. Uh, apologetics is, simply put, uh, the presentation of the Christian faith, right? where you're giving a defense of the faith. Any book you see that uh, is written today is. Um, if it's on apologetics, it will likely have something of the phrase, defense of the faith, defending your faith, knowing the faith, blah, blah, blah. Being ready for the faith, or being ready to share your faith, like those kind of things. That's, that's the idea. Um, but that, that spin on it, uh, if you want to call it that, is, is quite modern. Um, I'm not saying sharing the gospel is modern. I'm just saying apologetics as a specific discipline within seminaries, colleges, books, it's modern. It just is. right? Uh, you won't go back and read a book written by John Calvin on apologetics. You just won't find it. right? Uh, it wasn't a concern of theirs in the way that it is ours, and that's not because they weren't interacting with unbelievers, because they were. It's just the way that we think of it is very modern. right? So anytime we ask the question, we need to... At least think about the past. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll get into that a little more. Um, but even when you consider a guy like uh, the early church father, uh, Justin Martyr, when he was writing um, what might be called, a, he calls it an apology of the faith. It is a defense of the faith. But it was simply his dialogues with a particular man. It wasn't, here's a handbook on how to defend your faith. When you look at Thomas Aquinas in the medieval period, he has the uh, uh, the Summa Contra Gentiles. I think that's how you say it, but which is basically the sum of the matter against the Gentiles, which is where he defends the faith, as it were, against the Gentiles. But you see it has a particular audience. Right? It's, it's addressed very specifically, and that certainly, like everything else that Aquinas wrote because of its Massive size was not a manual on how to defend the faith, but I want to talk about how to defend the faith because that is practical. Um, but I want us to have that in mind too. That like I, I'm not going to give you, um, you know, that just simply a, a modern take on it. I, I want to kind of take a deep plunge into it as well, especially as we look at to Acts. 17, because this is one of the passages along with 1 Peter 3, which we'll look at in a moment. It's on the first page of your handout. Uh, these are the passages that come to mind that are, that are often in focus when people start talking about apologetics, Acts 17 and 1 Peter 3. All right, so we've read Acts 17. We'll come back to that in just a moment, uh, but that's our introduction uh, through the Scripture at least. You see Paul reasoning with men in Athens, Athens, Greece, right? Uh, at a place there called the Areopagus. It was this great structure uh, where people gathered, and verse 20 tells you what they did. So uh, you can know that they, um, excuse me, verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Sounds kind of like social media. But... Here we go. Let's look at this first quote here. This is by a man named Francis Beatty. He was an American Presbyterian um, around uh, the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. If you purchase this book that I'm citing here, um, and it's the one that I I cite, I assume all the editions are the same, but it has a foreword by B.B. Warfield. Uh, You should be familiar with him uh, if you're not. um, But if you weren't, now you are. Mm -hmm. He taught at uh, Princeton for a number of years. Anyway, let's look at this quote. While we place a very high value upon apologetics in its own proper sphere, we are careful not to overrate the service it can render. If you have a highlighter or a pen, that's a very important phrase. We are careful not to overrate the service it can render. Christianity, in its essence, does not stand or fall, is not made or unmade, by the effectiveness of any apologetic proposed for it. In the last analysis, the Christian system is its own best vindication, for the reason, mainly, that the foundations of Christianity lie deeper than any apologetic on its behalf can go. Apologetics neither plans nor lays these foundations. It can only exhibit their inherent strength and abiding security. Nor must it be supposed that apologetics is able to construct the contents of the Christian religion. These are provided in the gracious revelation of the redeeming activity of God as it is working out its divine purpose among men all along the ages. Still less must we expect that apologetics can convert a single soul. Only the gospel of the grace of God can affect this. But when all this is said, it is still true that from the very nature of the case, apologetics must ever retain its most important place and task. It is bound to present to each succeeding age the most effective vindication it can of the rational validity of the divine redeeming reality and of the unique supernatural character of Christianity. I have four things to say about that, kind of all drawn from this. First, keep apologetics and the efforts of man in perspective. That's what he's getting at in the first few sentences. Apologetics cannot convert anyone. That shows you also that apologetics, from his understanding, is not simply quoting the Bible. Because, of course, faith comes by hearing. But we all know that if you just sit and quote Scripture at someone all day long, they're probably not going to be converted. You have to engage them, right? But he says, keep apologetics and the efforts of man, or or he communicates, keep apologetics and the efforts of man in perspective. That's a summary of those first few sentences, right? That's important, Because maybe you have someone you love. I know uh, Mr. Ed had a brother who was an atheist. Um, And I'm sure some of you have people in your life that are uh, very out there uh, in their beliefs as well. And you can kind of feel this pressure, right, that you have to come up with the perfect argument. And that if you don't come up with the perfect argument, then, you know, you fail them. Right? That is letting apologetics get out of perspective. Only the Lord does that work. Yes, we're to try. Yes, we're to aim at it. And it's loving to engage them. But you have to keep apologetics and your own efforts in perspective. Second thing. Apologetics is a tool, like a light or a pointer for or to the truth. And you get this from the next few sentences, where he says that the Christian system is its own best vindication. If you want to think about it... um, kind of using a a mental picture. And this comes into play with so many things. We can say Christianity, I like to say the truth. Not that there's any distinction, but it kind of opens your mind. Because when I say Christianity, most people just think the Bible and that's not what's going on here because the Bible is a means right, to this. I'm sure the Bible here, not means, sorry. The Bible leads us to the truth. It leads us into the Christian faith. The Bible is not the Christian faith. You see what I'm saying? We don't worship the Bible. We worship God, who is the God of Christianity. You can put God up here in some way, right? Because I'm not talking about a content. Of information talking about participation in the truth and apologetics is a tool in the same way this is not to say that apologetics is on the same level as the Bible but that apologetics is a tool right to lead to the truth right just like you have if I'm working with wood I have a skill saw and maybe I have a handsaw for smaller cuts. Those two tools are not equal in value. A skill saw can plug into electricity, or maybe like today, they're battery powered, and they are very strong. Right? You can reow, do a two by four in no time. A skill saw, or a handsaw gonna take you some time. Right? Not as powerful. They're both tools, but not in the same realm.
1: <laughs> I don't, I don't to right.
0: Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Fair point. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, apologetics is a tool, and and he's getting into that. It neither plans nor lays these foundations. Right. He's showing you. It's just a, a pointer, as it were. It's one of the many things you can pick up to explain Christianity. Uh, third, exposing his. Dependence on things like uh, the necessity of God's grace, uh, he, he he emphasizes that any grasping or planting of the truth is by God's gracious revelation. Right? If God doesn't bless our efforts, however great they may be, nothing will happen. It is the work of God's grace. All right. And then the fourth. All right. Because you could read that. Uh, th- this kind of reminds me of of the passages in scripture where we're reminded of the sovereignty of God and the futility of man right where we're totally subject to his sovereignty because some people read that you know think about that in scripture and say well then I shouldn't do anything I don't have to worry about anything right God's sovereign he's going to work out what he wants anyway right that's kind of like the presentation he just gave right here isn't it but then he gets to the very end the last two sentences and we can summarize it with the fourth point I gave there the work of apologetics is a good work and therefore, to be pursued with all one's might, just as one would any other good work. Okay, any questions on that so far? Right, just kind of an introduction. I kind of told you what apologetics was—sharing uh, the faith, sort of. Right? We we need to see this too, or think about it. Uh, Apologetics does not equal evangelism. They're similar, but they're not the same. If you share John 3.16 with someone and explain the content of that verse, you're doing evangelism, right? They're an unbeliever. You're not doing apologetics. You see what I'm saying? Apologetics is very specific. You're not giving a defense of the faith, per se, and we'll get to that in just a second, but we have to have this understanding in our mind. Apologetics can give way to evangelism, or some way evangelism can give way to apologetics, but they are not the same thing, right? Um, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll work through that some more, but uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 15 and 16, down here at the bottom of the first page. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that, whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. I'll flip over to the back here. I'm going to give you a few points on this as well, right? Maybe you have your Bible open, or maybe you want to... Flip back and forth. I should have put these on the same page. You can see them together. Sort of split it like that, but just took some comments based on this verse. Right, being ready requires preparation, doesn't it? Right, just logically. Right, you can't be ready for something if you don't prepare for it. The scripture here calls on us to be ready to give um, an answer. This the word apologia, right? This this idea that we're to be ready to give a defense to every man. That asks for a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness. Let me say this. It is a leap to say that every man needs to be prepared to do apologetics in the narrow sense of the term. You see what I'm saying? Right? He is not saying that every man needs to be familiar with R.C. Sproul's defending your faith. Though that's nice and wonderful. He's not saying every man needs to have read Greg Bonson's explanation of Christian epistemology. Right? That's not what he's saying. He, he, that could not be further from the apostle's mind or the Holy Spirit. He is simply saying to be ready to explain why you live the way you live. It's, it's very simple. And the Greek word for that is apologia, yes. But that does not mean be ready for apologetics. Being ready, though, it requires preparation. And to draw on a previous phrase in that passage, it's sanctifying the Lord in your heart. How do we do that? Well, the easy one, right, is point two. Steady time in the word and prayer is the way. The best explanation you can give somebody is not philosophy or anything like that. So that will come in at some point. We'll talk about it in just a second when we get more focused on apologetics. But this passage is simply requiring us as Christians, to be ready in season and out of season. It's kind of the thing, like Paul says to Timothy, to have a steady diet in the word and prayer. And if somebody says, hey, why do you interact with your husband like that? Why do you treat your children that way? You can say because you love them or whatever, but if you have sanctified the Lord in your heart and you're ready, then you can give them a word from the Lord. It's kind of the point that I want you to see here. The third thing, the world has questions that only Christians can provide full answers for. Notice the word full there. I did not say that the world has questions that only Christians can provide answers for, but that only Christians can provide full answers for. We have the fullness of the truth in Christianity. That doesn't mean we are the only ones who know any truth. The conclusion does not follow. The world has questions. And that's kind of what Peter is getting at, right? Uh, Be ready to give an answer to every man who asks a reason of the hope that is in you. To do it with meekness and fear as well. There's a manner that he commands. But he assumes that there are going to be those who ask. And let's let's be for real, right? Uh, When we are very intentional about our holiness, people ask questions. They just do. It may be a derogatory question where they're actually insulting you, kind of like what Peter says here, right? You you can maybe you've seen it in your family, or friends, or things like that. When you really, really, really devote yourself to the Lord, even though it makes very little sense to you in the moment, and they're like, "What are you doing?" Right? It's kind of the idea here that Peter's getting at. Fourth thing: your answer does not have to be perfect. But it ought to give you a clean conscience so that whatever evil they may say is false. That's the point of verse 16 there. Having a good conscience so that if they might speak evil of you, it is actually false right? because of your good conversation in Christ. Conversation is, is manner of living. Just King James, i am quote there. The fifth thing, your ability to give an answer is part of your conversation in Christ. I'm not talking about the quality of your answer necessarily. But how hard is it, honestly, to spend time in the Word of God and to be able to explain why you do what you do from Scripture? not complicated. You just have to sanctify the Lord in your heart and spend time in Word and prayer. Any questions on that before we move on to, uh, to the next quotes?
1: Uh, I think that apologetics, when I first heard it from a Christian standpoint, I thought, Christ, you know, it was something that, that was exclusive to Christianity. Yep. We're talking about Christian apologetics. Whereas, uh, I mean, uh, to give an apologetic, then I understand is, you know, somebody who's a a Muslim yes. has their apologetic too. Uh, so. So we just need to be, um, you know, have, have an approach, you know, be flexible in that approach, but have, have a general approach to presenting what is the, the gospel that we have. What, is, what yeah.
0: is the gospel? Yeah, um, yeah I mean, like, like I was, uh, I mean, you connected back to what, one of the things I was saying earlier that um, there is a sense in which uh, we are well defending the faith is a real thing, right? right. And it's not just something that, that Christians do, um, and that we are called to do that. But but what what I really want to get down into maybe maybe I'm not being uh, as clear as as I want to be. It's very very possible. Um, but is that. There's a difference in doing apologetics and obeying what these passages are saying. Right? So, like, so many people take these passages and just run away with it and say, well, every man's an apologist. Well, that's all well and good, but what does that mean? Right? What does it mean to say every man's an apologist? Like, that's why I was saying that, you know, when you talk about these, these things, that. Uh, I'm trying to do two things at one time uh, there's our remaining two pages
1: isn't it kind of your walk in life that you're you know if you're a
0: Christian your whole mindset's different oh yeah um, yeah, I think that's what Peter did at in 1 Peter 3, that your conversation in Christ it communicates. Yeah. And we could say in some sense that's an, an apologetic. That is a, a defense of the faith in a way. But I want to try to separate as much as we can in our minds, like just this notion of you having to know complex arguments about... Uh, Christian faith. You being able to, you know, explain these complex Christian arguments, and uh, actually being faithful to Scripture, because those two are not the same. I, I a Christian who is, um, you know. A young convert, or what you know, an immature Christian, or whatever the case may be. Yes, we want them to grow from milk uh, to the meat of the Word, but they should not be embarrassed at all if someone like you know Sam can talk over their heads philosophically. Sam talks over my head philosophically, <laughs> right? And and maybe I should know more about that. I probably should, but not not everyone is gifted and equipped the same way. I get That's a good way to, to kind of frame what I'm saying. Not everyone is gifted and equipped the same way. And because of that, not everyone should feel the pressure of doing apologetics. It's kind of like the same discussion where uh, people say, every Christian is a missionary. Okay, but what does that mean? Right, what do you mean by that? Does that mean I should, for every person who walks the face of the planet, identifying with Christ should forsake their family, should go across the world? No, that's not what that means, right? This is why it's helpful to be particular and specific in our definitions. So um, let's get a little bit more into the specifics. Uh, and um, yeah, let's do that with the Christianity, maybe construed middle of page two here. This is Beatty again. It says, Christianity may be construed in three well-defined relations. This is where we're going to get down into the specifics of apologetics here. First, its philosophical foundations are to be carefully examined. Secondly, its historicity and divine authority must be taken fully into account. And thirdly, its practical results in the world in relation to the pressing problems of thought and life among men must be diligently considered. From these three viewpoints, we derive the three main branches of apologetics. They may be termed fundamental, Christian, and applied apologetics, respectively. The first leads us to construe Christianity mainly in relation to its underlying philosophy. The second calls upon us to interpret Christianity in the light of its unique redemptive history, while the third bids us test the Christian system by means of its splendid fruitage world, close quote, uh, What the three points I gave you there is just what he gave in that paragraph, right, because he went one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, so I went back through and organized them for you in the order, or in the, uh, in an ordered way, because he actually went ABC ABC so I'm listing it for you like this, so what are philosophical proofs, right, that's the first thing he says, notice he puts that first, right, This is another reason why everyone should not feel the burden of being an apologist in the narrow sense. Because not everyone can run the routes of philosophical proofs. And uh, when you begin to study the defense of the faith before yesterday, and by yesterday I mean before 75 years ago, philosophy is always and will always be involved in defending the faith. It just will. So, what are you know philosophical proofs? That's the first thing he says. Philosophical foundations. So it's like things like the arguments for the existence of God. Right? Um, there's so many books on that. Um, and he calls this, as I have there in A, fundamental, right? Foundational. That's right? where you um, it doesn't mean it's where you start if you're trying to share the faith with somebody. That's not what he's saying. He's saying by order. Of reason, or by order of experience, this is the first thing, right? Um, and I'll get to that in in just a second when I'll talk about why he orders them the way he does. Uh, the second thing about the philosophical proofs is it's Christianity and its underlying philosophy. So that's his his threefold explanation of that first point. That when we talk about Um, Christianity or excuse me when we're doing apologetics narrowly considered that this must be taken into account this must be taken into account when we're talking about apologetics as a discipline second thing historicity and divine authority the claims of scripture is this category B, or A, meaning the the Christian aspect of, or the explicitly Christian notions of apologetics. That is a category of its own. Uh, Because you can explain someone, you can persuade someone of the existence of a God. There are plenty of people who believe in a God. But to move them from a God to Christianity is another step. It's a work that only the Lord can do. But when you're talking about apologetics as a discipline, these are separate categories. Um, the second point he makes there about historicity and divine authority is Christianity and its unique redemptive history. And He's just talking about what the Scriptures say, right? what, what the Scriptures teach about the creation of the world, the redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ and His second coming. Like those would be the kind of things that he's talking about. And then the third thing, this is is where you get like 1 Peter 3.15 space right here. Practical results. How does it meet you where you are? Where he talks about applied apologetics. Christianity and its fruit in the world. Now maybe you could pick an area of study to equip yourself in these matters that you might improve as a, quote, apologist. Some people are keen on philosophy. Some people are keen on the claims in Scripture. Some are better in the more experiential category, the more practical category. But all of them are valid because the Lord addresses all of them. And all of those things are elements of the Christian faith. The first is reason, right? So I'm renaming them here. The first is reason. The second is faith. Excuse the typo. And the third is practice. That order is important. Because in some way, reason precedes faith. Reason precedes faith, at least in our experience and chronologically, right? So what, what that means is that you can think before you are a Christian, right? Rather than that funny quote, Sam, I do not think, therefore I do not be in, Right? <laughs> um, we think. We reason. Right Now our reason has fallen, and Christianity restores to us our reason. Right? It sanctifies our reason. But reason comes first, and that's why he puts the philosophical proofs being as the fundamental point. Right? So, so when you're uh, talking to someone, and uh, like... Uh, you know, you, you talk about uh, cause and effect, right? That all things have, all things that have an effect have a cause, right? They came from somewhere. Right? You're doing reason. Right? The cause and effect analogy is not in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 12. Right? It's a reasonable thing that we do that can train people's, or seek to lead people's minds, and hopefully their heart, to see that if everything has a cause and effect, then everything came from something. Because it can't just be an endless chain of cause and effect, cause and effect, or effect and cause, because you're going from right to left, technically, at that point. That there has to be an ultimate cause that started everything. Right? And we call that cause God. Right? That's philosophical apologetics, if you want to say that term. But let's be honest. Most people aren't going to be able to carry that on their hip and just whip it out at any time. Does that mean everybody's not an apologist? In some sense, yes. But it doesn't mean everybody has to, or it doesn't mean that um, we should be ashamed of not being able to do those certain things because that's just one aspect of it. He lists the, the scripture there. That is an element of it as well historicity and divine authority. The Bible. Faith comes after reason. You have to teach people how to reason. Yes, the Bible's a tool in that, but it's not the only tool in that. And the third is practice. This is kind of the thing like when someone says, I didn't know peace until I knew Jesus Christ. That's what that third category is talking about. Once the Lord came into my life, everything began to make sense. And here's why. That's that third category. Anybody can do that. Right? And that's why we can kind of all pick our own little focus here from these three arguments. Um, Any questions on that? That was probably clear clear as mud.
1: I just think that uh, it from keeping in mind that this grid is sort of is, is good from the standpoint of you just need to be aware of these and talking with people what where, where they are entering it from, where you're entering the conversation. Right. From. Some people are gonna start right with Christianity, some people are practical, uh, sit that, sit around the table type experience. Mm-hmm. And some people are going to start in the philosophical thing right. uh, and the argument that you use, you just have to be aware of where they're coming from, I think, right? Yeah, and, and, that and that, sense, no, right? that's, that's perfect.
0: That kind of prepares us for where we're going, but like, I, I just want to alleviate any pressure um, that anybody feels <clears> that having to be skilled at everything in order to share the faith. Like, it's just unnecessary right to think that you know that Miss Dottie wants to share the gospel with her neighbor who is or for some strange reason has a uh, PhD from UNC Chapel Hill and she's a 75 year old lady she's like a raging first wave feminist or something like that that was the first one to graduate with a PhD from UNC Chapel Hill but people exist. But let's just say that was Miss Dottie's neighborhood. Miss Dottie probably would not be able to sit next to her and say, let's study Galatians. Let's read Galatians together and see what the Apostle Paul says. Right? It just wouldn't work. I would argue that based on Acts, Paul wouldn't either. Oh, that's where I'm going. Okay. That's where I'm going. Yep. (laughs) Right? Do he said he would argue from Acts 17 that that's not what Paul would do either. Okay. Um, the point is, kind of like what I said earlier. <clears throat> There's many points on this, but this one just jumped back in my head. Isn't that nifty? <clears throat> the Bible is a tool right, to lead to the truth. And apologetics is one of those tools. And we can, to use... Um, Based outline here, in no like order of importance, these three are aspects of philosophy, or excuse me, aspects of apologetics is what he's getting at. So, kind of to bring back to what Ms. Dottie is saying, the best way to probably engage someone like that would be one, to see how they engage you, but two, with academic thinkers like Mr. Ed's pointing out about Acts 17, you're going to have to address more philosophical issues. Right? Maybe you're not equipped to do that. Maybe you're not comfortable doing that. Maybe you need help. Maybe you want to read some things to get better equipped at it. But it just proves the point that simply quoting the Bible is not apologetics. It's a part of it. But that's not everything, right? And it it won't actually suffice to do the work. And the reason we know it won't suffice is because that's not even what Paul did. Yes, ma'am. Paul kind of piqued their interest. You know,
1: and sometimes that's all you need to begin with, just maybe get them to start thinking a little bit about
0: it. Yep, and you can, and and that normally works with one of these two, right? You can really, catch somebody's, Interest with experience or philosophy? Like, I mean, I would even say that, you know, Mr. Hugh and I were talking yesterday about um, homeless people, because we saw when he and I and Jude were coming back through Aiken, there was a guy asking for money. And I, I, I don't remember which one of us said it, but uh, <coughs> it was like, he had this sign that said, house fire, need money, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think it was Mr. Hugh said, You know, if that fellow had a church family, he probably wouldn't be standing there. Right? Is that not in some way something that you could put in the experience category? A defense of Christianity. This experience that you have of of the fullness of life that comes from knowing the Lord. Uh, Anyway, let's uh, get to this longer quote here. Um, so it's page uh, three. Going over to it's a very long quote. <clears throat> I like long quotes. So we probably will have to, yeah, you know, we'll have to stop in just a moment. But we can at least start it, and I'll mark our place, when we can return. If you want to uh, look at this book, this is the book it comes from: uh, Early Christianity and Greek Paideia. Uh so you don't get lost on the word paideia from the echo because maybe you're one of those people that hears a weird word and you get hung up on it and don't listen to the quote that I'm about to read. Paideia is a word for discipline or education. It's what Paul quotes. It's the word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6-4 when he says raise your children in the paideia, nurture, education, instruction, and admonition of the Lord. Okay? So let's get through this quote here. <coughs> It says, thus it was the early Christian mission, so he's talking about the apostles, that forced the missionaries or apostles to use Greek forms of literature and speech in addressing the Hellenized Jews to whom they turned first and whom they met in all the great cities of the Mediterranean world. Let me give some definitions. All right? So at the time in which Christ comes on the scene, when, when uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is incarnate, and shortly thereafter, there's a heavy influence um, from Greek culture, Greece, on the Jews. Right? So you have this idea of a Hellenized Jew. Right? So a lot of the people that they're interacting with in the scriptures are Jews who have been influenced by Hellenized thinking. Hellenized is just a, a fancy word to say for Greek culture right? or Greek thinking kind of thing. All right, so he's saying that it was with these early Christian missionaries that they knew that and therefore grounded themselves in some way in that literature and that speech so that they might engage them. All right, does that make sense? They familiarized themselves with the way the people already thought so that they could better engage them. Now what's profound about that is that that makes its way onto the pages of Scripture. Right? Because you go back and read Greek literature before the apostles, and we'll get even references uh, Plato in just a moment, I think. Um, memory serves. Before the apostles, they're using words in the way that the apostles would use them as if the Lord had prepared that word for the New Testament. It's, you know, if God is sovereign, and we know that he is, then it would make sense of all that. The reason this is important is because so many people, when they start thinking about apologetics, they're like, Christian thinking is over here, and worldly thinking is over here. And that's not necessarily the case. Because what you see with the apostles, is they borrow from this thinking of an unbelieving world because there is truth in it. And they use that to go, whoop! Just like that. Alright? If all truth is God's truth, then it makes sense. They latch on to these ideas, and this is just the context in which they found themselves in. Alright? So... This became, second sentence there, this became all the more necessary when Paul approached the Gentiles and began to make converts among them. This protreptic, I learned a new word with that. I gave you the definition at the bottom. It's an educational speech. I didn't know that word. This protreptic activity itself was a characteristic feature of Greek philosophy in Hellenistic times. Now, let me stop here too. When you read 1 Corinthians, and Paul's engaging about these different speakers that were very eloquent. That's what he's talking about. right? That's who this guy's referring to here. That they were known for the eloquence and the power of their speeches and their verbiage. That's why Paul says things like, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? I didn't play their games and try to impress you with worldly wisdom, but I preached Jesus Christ. We also know that doesn't mean that he didn't do or use the knowledge that they He's just saying his manner was not the same as theirs, Because we see in Acts 17, him actually quoting them. He says, The various schools tried to find followers by making protreptic speeches. If it means educational speech, to me that's redundant, but anyway. By making protreptic speeches in which they recommended their philosophical knowledge or dogma as the only way to happiness. Sorry for the typo there. I'm about to end very quickly, but... um, Let's just stop right there, uh, because we can come back to this. Um, This shows you that uh, even in the philosophers of the day, that they're presenting their philosophical knowledge, their dogma, their doctrines, right, as the only way to happiness. Right. So the way that we interact, we see the uh, unbelieving world engage with Christianity. The way we see, like all these various groups, like the LGBT community and all those things, they present themselves the same way. The way to happiness, the way to self-fulfillment is fill in the blank. Right? This is not an old practice. This is the same exact method that the apostles were engaging, but the content was different. Right? And that's one of the things I want to... Where I'm going to go, and then I'll close this in prayer, um, but where I'm going to go is I'm going to make an argument that The apostles knew the world that they were engaging. So you should, too, if you want to do apologetics. That's the point. Because you and I don't engage with Hellenized Jews. We don't. But we need to figure out who our Hellenized Jews are so we can know how to engage them. If we want to do apologetics. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time of study. We pray that uh, the weakness of my communication would be removed and that the truth and its power would be made known in the hearts of your people so that we might be prepared to defend the faith, um, remove any pressure that there may be to um, step outside of our gifting or our our level of knowledge that you've given us and assure us uh, that your grace is sufficient for us And that you will prepare us as long as uh, we do what Peter says. We sanctify you in our hearts through the scriptures and through prayer. Prepare us uh, for worship in these final moments. For your glory and honor we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.